0: unfair sex, four women, four glasses of wine, and a whole world of problems to navigate. Yes, there's going to be some rage, but there's also going to be a hell of a lot of laughter, learning, catharsis, and camaraderie along the way. So grab a glass of wine and join us.
1: Welcome to today's episode. We are super excited to have with us today Mariam Monsef, who is the founder and CEO of Onward. Uh, Before starting her own organisation, Mariam led public policy files at the highest levels of the Canadian government. In 2015, she was elected as a member of parliament in Canada and chosen to serve in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet. Between 2015 to 2021, she served as President of the Queen's Privy Council, Minister of the Democratic Institutions, Minister for the Status of Women, Minister of International Development, Minister of Rural Economic Development, and established Canada's first full department for women and gender equality as its minister. Welcome, Marion. We are delighted to have you here. How are you today? Thank you. I am well. I've got my water. I've
2: got my coffee and I'm thrilled to be joining all three of you.
0: I can't, I can't even tell you how excited I am about this, that you're here with us. And today I've been reading through once again, all of the amazing stuff you've done. And uh, yeah, so we are so, so grateful that you're here. We hope everyone listening to this enjoys it as much as we will enjoy talking to you.
1: That's very nice. Thank you perfect so to kick things off would you like to share your sorry what did you say moment
2: i have so many what did you say moments um <laughs> you know walking into the room and shaking the hand of the person i'm meeting and they're not very nice to me but you know someone annoyed and then they say when is the minister getting here uh you know i have on more than one occasion going into a room when it's all all men and you know the women around the room, the two or three of us around the room happen to not be very nice to each other. Um, but let me share with you, uh, sorry, what did you say moment that is actually reoccurring. And I didn't realize it was a thing until I got elected and appointed to Canada's first gender balance cabinet. From the very beginning, uh, some of the coverage, uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau decided that there should be an equal number of women and men around the table, focused on, okay, but are these women worthy of being around the table? Do they have the qualifications to be around the table? And somebody like me, who at the time was... 30 years old, and, you know, the first Afghan around the table, the first Muslim around the federal cabinet table, and an activist turned politician, you know, a lot of those certainly did come my way. And, you know, at the time, I didn't speak to it. And for years, I didn't speak to it. Because I just thought, you know, the harder I work, the more... I will show them that no, I may not have gone to Harvard or you know, been in politics for 30 years or had generations of my family in politics. I may not be a Bay Street executive, but as you know, a relatively younger person who was raised by a single mom, who came to Canada as a refugee, who, you know, has an education, who's involved in the community, I have something of value to add. And I can learn. I can learn very quickly. Well, Turns out that that wasn't the case. And so often I wanted to say, okay, but I'm not around this table because I check off all these boxes. I'm around this table. I've made it into the corridors of power despite the fact that I check off all these boxes. So maybe some of your listeners can share how they would respond to ongoing claims that just because you're around the decision-making table that folks like you are not usually around doesn't mean you don't belong there how do you respond to it because maybe that'll be therapy for me
0: we've all definitely had those moments where we've been told either we're not supposed to be here or i've been told in certain situations um, because i've been in leadership roles i'm too young um at the time so i think my first senior leadership role in government i was 30 and uh, a lot of people didn't think i had the qualifications i had a few people say to me um oh it's it's well not directly say it's because i'm a woman but have said that i'd moved up too fast that i hadn't sort of served my time in previous roles to be able to move up um but my thought from from in your situation is that you got those roles because you checked off all those boxes um that you don't we've we've talked about it on the podcast before if you've got a load of white harvard educated men with 30 years of experience they are all exactly the same and they don't bring what you bring and um, that's something we've discussed in a previous podcast you get given a role because you offer something different um, but yeah, the thing to say in that moment is um, I can't remember if we've come up with, with the perfect response previously, but uh, Anne Marie, Ellie, have you, have you got any thoughts?
3: I think, in response to kind of, it's that what do you say to yourself to keep yourself motivated and confident in your own ability when everyone else is suggesting that perhaps you haven't got there on your own merits and you've just got there because you're, you're, twi- you're ticking a quota. Um, or, or filling filling an equation. I think I think for me, um, I definitely get the doubts in the back of my mind. That classic imposter syndrome of thinking, am I am I here because I'm just here to make the place look diverse? Am I going to be genuinely listened to? Um, and I think my confidence comes from my network of friends, and it's primarily other women who, you know, I'm I'm so proud of all the stuff that the the three people on this podcast have accomplished. Um, and, and representing women, and I know that Ellie and Rhiannon, when you guys talk to me, you always remind me of the things that I'm accomplishing and how extraordinary it is, and how you're proud of me. So I think I, I don't know if the confidence necessarily comes from within me, but I think I heavily rely on my my network of, of of other women primarily, but but other friends and family and people to to say, hey, don't forget that you've got there because because you're good and you're worth it.
1: So that's mine. As always, Anne-Marie swoops in with something ultra positive and leaves us feeling warm and fuzzy. And then I feel really shit because I'm coming next and mine might not be quite as warm as fuzzy. But I have two thoughts that came to mind after listening to you both. And the first is the quote from Shirley Chisholm where she said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. I love that, and I think that is highly appropriate to the conversation we're having today. Uh, the second, unfortunately, is a little bit more pessimistic, and it's the fact that there are people out there who genuinely believe women have nothing to bring to the table. And those that do make it either cheated or lied their way to the top or unfairly took the role at the expense of a male's success. I stumbled across a Jordan Peterson article from about four years ago titled The Gender Scandal. Now, the reason this popped up into my head uh, was because in part two, Peterson focused on Canada. Specifically, Peterson directly calls out Trudeau's decision to make his cabinet 50% women, calling it a mistake of unforgivable magnitude. Peterson goes on to say in his article that is it also unreasonable to point out that the women who accepted those positions granted them unfairly in a prejudiced and discriminatory manner. Took them as their due, despite the unlikelihood statistically of their suitability for the positions in question, and thus betrayed themselves, men, and women everywhere striving fairly for advancement and authority and their country. Now, firstly, Peterson writes that there is no relationship between sex and incompetence, but then spends a good half a blog reminding readers that only 26% of the elected MPs in Trudeau's government were women. So it seems sex does matter after all, otherwise, the makeup of the cabinet, well, you just wouldn't bother him so. And for those trying to do the math, in 2015 there was 184 MPs in Trudeau's government and the government consisted of 31 members, including Trudeau himself, uh, and that split was 15 women to 16 men. Now I think we can all agree that out of those 184 MPs, 26 of which were women, which is about 47, 48 individuals, there is quite a high possibility that Trudeau could have reasonably found 15 women capable of joining his cabinet. So I think it's actually less about competency and more about the fact that some women got the job that for Peterson they shouldn't have. Uh, secondly, can we just stop talking as if there's no incompetent men have ever been hired or promoted before? That every man has always deserved the positions they get and haven't unfairly taken these roles from others more capable? Because conveniently not too many people worry about accidentally hiring an incompetent man. But people are very hept up about accidentally hiring incompetent women and denying a man a job. I'm gonna stop here and I'm just gonna finish on like there's still a lot of anger towards women in positions of power. And it comes from this place of like, you know, how dare these women, these feminists, and in this case, Trudeau, attempt to level the playing field for those in the highest office. And it just goes back to this idea that some people feel they're getting something taken away from them. And all we're doing is actually, I say, we are creating more of a merit-based environment because we're bringing through different points of view, different experiences, different skill sets. And... And if we're going by what Peterson said about there being no relationship between sex and competency, then, well, it does not matter, does it? But it seems to matter a lot when women either equal men or outnumber men. In situations where it's a full male board or full male panel, no one, not even a squeak. So it's just, it's, it's really telling. Let
2: me say this. I'm... I was the first woman to be elected from my constituency to represent my community in Ottawa. I'm not the first woman who ran for the position, okay? There have been so many qualified, hardworking women who have stepped up and, you know, I just didn't more care for them despite how qualified they were for the jobs. So, you know, Let me say to that, the premise of that argument suggests that, you know, in 150 years of Canada's confederation, there has never been enough qualified women in the entirety of the country to have a seat around that decision-making table, ever. So that's what I'll say to the very false and very problematic premise of that argument. And and to your point, Amory, I I got my confidence from my community because I didn't run because I was like, oh, I'm going to be great at this job. Let me just throw my hat in. It took like 14 different attempts to ask me to run and 150 conversations with people I looked up to in the, in the community to say, okay, they've got my back. They believe in me. I've got something to offer. I'm going to do it. I've got a great team. I'm never going to be alone and I'm open to learning. I'm entering this with humility and it is a labor of love and I'm going to give it everything I got because I got to give back to my community. Like that's where I got my energy from. But to your point, Rhiannon, if I were a Harvard graduate, if I did have 30 years of experience, if if I were a man... I bet you anything, I would have had a much easier time getting elected. I would have had to work way less hard. I would have dealt with way less opposition. I would have had way more resources to help me get to that level and then to govern once I got into that place. So I didn't get there because of those boxes. I didn't, I didn't get elected cause it was so easy to be raised by a single mom, to live off food banks and social housing. I didn't get there because it was so easy to rely on student loans, work two jobs, go to school, be involved in extracurriculars, deal with intergenerational trauma. I didn't get there because, you know, I was surrounded by folks, you know, in a culture where, you know, I don't see somebody like me represented. That's, I got elected despite all that. And so there are folks listening now, particularly young women, and I've, you know, had this conversation over the past eight years with so many, and again, this is the first time I'm actually talking about this in this way. I've had this conversation so many times that I am tired of it, not because I'm taking it so deeply personally. No, I took it personally early on. And then I was like, oh, this thing's going to take time to change. It's a cultural shift that needs to happen. But I'm fed up because it is limiting the potential of our communities, of my country here. It is sending the wrong messages to the little girls like my nieces who are paying attention to this and underlying that anger that Ellie spoke about, right? That anger manifests itself in different ways. Little girls see that on social media and they see how that anger leads to women in decision-making positions being treated like garbage, like they don't belong. And that leads to them saying, why would I put my hand up for a leadership position? It's not worth it. And then what do we end up with? We end up with people who feel entitled, who feel like, you know, the rest of us don't belong there, making decisions on our behalf that are very much out of line with what we need and what, frankly, our economies and our communities need. So I'm worked up about it now because I just see more of it instead of less of it. And I used to believe. I used to believe that if over time enough of us get to these these positions and get things done, that the tide will change. But this pushback isn't going away. In fact, getting stronger.
0: And um, something that I, I read on your website was that you said that during the pandemic, it's just got worse, that even the women who have made it to leadership positions, they're taking on so many extra responsibilities, um, whether that's through caring for their teams in a different way or they've got home responsibilities that were higher than before and various other things that they're going, I'm just done, I can't do this anymore. And so they're stepping back as well. So even the women that are already in leadership positions, it's not there's, there's none coming through because there are going to be women saying and girls saying, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to face it. And then the ones that are there are stepping back. And that's a. Ellie and well, we've all discussed this, but I mean, I, Ellie and I have certainly spoken about in our teams at work um, how we've ended up taking on different responsibilities and we're the ones organising the social events to try and help people feel connected and caring for people who live on their own and we're ringing them outside of work hours and various other things. Um, and that's really, really tough. And then the other thing that you mentioned um, is around uh, the, it being making you even more angry now i think i'm more angry about it than i previously was because when i was sort of facing those comments when i was a bit younger i just kind of i either i guess i just kind of took it on and now i now it doesn't bother me so much and i will say something in response or i'll I'll in myself go no i can do this and i i do deserve to be here and actually you can you can go away um but it's the women who speak to me and say how do you cope with it who were younger than me. And I'm like, you're probably not going to say anything because you're younger. And in the place that I was in, then someone could have told me to say a million things and I wouldn't have said any of it because I didn't have the confidence. And it's how how do you get younger women who were moving up into those positions who are who are more than qualified? Because there'll be plenty of men who only tick off three of the ten things that they need to do to be able to fulfill the job, but they still apply and they still get it. Um, There's plenty of men that won't be qualified that will be doing it, but women who won't, who won't push themselves forward because they're so beaten down. I don't really know how we go about boosting those women in a way that we didn't feel like we could be boosted.
2: I think other women help supportive, kind and frank women who keep you grounded who have been there who can show you the way they've certainly been there for me and part of my superpower is having those women in my corner but there have also been so many men who have understood this and have stepped up as champions as allies uh you know whether it was as my campaign managers or my mentors or my coaches or my teachers or the people I'd call at, you know, stupid late at night, frustrated, sometimes in tears. And, you know, they'd listen and, you know, make soothing sounds on the other end and help strategize how to keep your eye on the prize and keep focused on what you, what you got there. So there are ways to push back uh, and support the individual particularly young women going through that kind of backlash and feeling it. And women and men, folks of all genders play a role in being that supportive. But you know, part of why I open with this with you women today is because well maybe maybe it didn't help that I was just like just keep your head down, just do the work and hustle hard and things will change. Maybe that's not how things change when you've got noisy, angry people shouting their anger and frustration and filling space with only their side of things and perpetuating problematic cultural biases. Maybe maybe part of the solution is, is folks like me having the courage and the patience to have this conversation, maybe. I hope that is the case. What What I
3: like to hear is that there are women that look like all of us in positions of authority now. And I quite like hearing that it's being noticed. And I I know it's being noticed because some people are getting getting upset and saying it's not right. But I think all all four of us who are on the call have had experience of getting seniority through having to kind of fight our way to the top and ignoring the misogyny and ignoring, you know, people who are rude to us and dismissive of us and just thinking, I'll keep my head down, I'll work hard, I'm show- I'll show you that I'm the best and, you know, and it's unpleasant. But now I hope we're getting to a generation of people, uh, of young girls in particular, who can see a diverse group in positions of seniority who are now in a position, we, we're getting the brunt of it because we're accomplishing so many firsts as women. And now we can kind of reach our hands down and pull those people up instead of them having to try and fight through this cloud of, of people pushing back on it. I hope I hope that's what we start seeing. It's so easy, isn't it, to, to read a post from someone saying this shouldn't be happening and and women aren't doing the right thing. And it's it's so easy to focus on that and remember it and play it over and over. Um, But I wish we could do better at remembering the positive things that our community says to us uh, and the positive feedback that we get. Maybe that's something we need to
1: work on. I think you're absolutely right, anne The pushback Mariam and Rihanna mentioned is definitely getting stronger and it feels like the retaliation is directly linked to the fact that women, people of colour, members of the LGBTQ plus community are accomplishing so many firsts. And with every first we accomplish, every award we win, every country we successfully lead, we're saying to the naysayers that we can no longer be ignored and I think for some people, mostly those who have largely benefited from others being denied social and economic mobility, they are reacting out of fear that the system they know and depend on is changing and they are being left behind. I would like to counter one point though, and that's, yes, it's important to focus on the positive feedback that our communities give us, but we shouldn't put our heads in the sand and hope everything else will just go away by itself. I'm not saying that that's what you were saying, but I think a lot of advice women get is to just ignore it, leave the platforms where they might be experiencing abuse, change companies, you know, just focus on the good stuff and stop making a fuss. And the problem with that is when women make a fuss in the form of official complaints, we rarely get heard unless there happens to be 80 other women accusing the same man of the same act. And even then, women get called liars and manipulators or gold diggers, insert derogative term here. And with that comes this defeatist mentality of why would I bother speaking out? So if the go-to advice for women is to look the other way or think of something more positive or remove yourself from the situation, can serve a much bigger injustice of silencing experiences or allowing abusers to roam free in every circle of our society with no accountability. I mean, you just have to look at David Carrick, you know, like a police officer for more than 20 years within the UK. He pleaded guilty to 49 sex offences, making him one of Britain's most prolific sex offenders. And what makes this story so disheartening is that the Metropolitan Police Force ignored eight warnings about Carrick's abusive behavior. So here is a 2023 example of women coming forward victims coming forward and their stories not being believed. And because the system failed to protect these women not once, but eight times, a man was able to continue abusing his position of power. So yes, we should raise women up and focus on the positives, but I don't think we should keep telling over new leads until we find stories that are easier to read. And you know, when people do come to you with a problem, if you're in a position where you can actually take action, such as a police force, then we shouldn't try and find the easiest and quickest way to make the problem go away.
0: I'd love to, um, you mentioned um, one of the, uh, another, sorry, what did you say around uh, being asked when the minister was gonna show up and a few things around that. And we discussed that briefly when we met the first time about um, me being asked a similar, not when the minister's gonna be here, but being a senior official being asked to make the tea and how often that happened um and your comment was at least as a as a as a minister you had some privileges and you were able to sort of say hang on I am the minister it's quite hard as an official but what did you what did you do in those moments when someone said to you when's the minister getting here because you were also quite young weren't you like you're 29 when you were first elected so were you were you a minister at that point or 29 30 um so you were quite young what what how did you react and respond in that moment
2: yeah, it was I was 30 when I got elected and to your point like I felt confident in the power and the privilege I had, right? This room of folks were there to have a conversation with me. And so I didn't need to get my back up and I would smile and shake her hand and say, "Here I am. Uh nice to meet you." Uh and you know, they'd laugh it off and you know, there's there's a lot of need and there's a lot of room for grace in this work. You can't just be angry and disappointed with every interaction that subtly or not so subtly reminds you that oh, you don't actually belong in that room or this person doesn't think I belong in that room. That's not productive. But I, you know, again, with that power and privilege, um have seen my own staff, like some of the most badass women I work with, whom I relied on for all sorts of support, be treated in a way that was less than kind and less than gracious, less than appropriate. And when I was brave, I would call that out in sometimes a humorous way, sometimes not so humorous way. If there weren't enough chairs around the table, something I learned from my boss, from the prime minister was you pull up chairs and you make sure that these women have a seat around that table. And they'll say, no, 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 no. And you say, no, you're gonna sit around this table because you have something to offer. But what did, what did you do? How did you respond when you were asked to make tea?
0: There were two occasions when it happened to me. One of them was um, when, so I went into a room um, and was like, like I said, I was I was the only woman I was specifically asked to make, they looked at me and said, can you make the tea? And I think in that moment, it was, it was the first time it happened. And I was just so surprised that I thought to myself, I probably would have done it anyway. <laughs> so I'm just going to do it. And so I didn't, but it's since then that I've gone, I should have said something. I just wish I had like something quick to, to respond back with, but because I didn't have anything in that moment, I, I didn't respond with anything. The other time was when, um, I was. I was having a meeting meeting with a minister and i was the only woman in a room of maybe about 10 or 12 people but i was the most senior uh, second most senior one there and was the one leading on this specific topic um and everyone in the room was asked to introduce themselves except for me and then my boss said minister this is rhiannon uh she's the lead on this and is the deputy director um and he didn't apologize. He didn't look shocked. He didn't like nothing. Um, but in that moment, a bit like you said earlier about men sort of championing you, that boss of mine was incredible. Um, and he, had he been able to, he wouldn't have come to that meeting, but it was insisted that he came as the most senior person in the department, etc. Um, But he was like, I, I can't offer anything. You're the one that knows this topic. Um, but yeah, the minister assumes that I was the private secretary. But even if I had been the private secretary, it's still rude not to ask for someone's name, like just because I'm the one taking the notes doesn't mean you don't deserve to be introduced. But yeah, it was someone else on that occasion who, who said something. And again, I don't know what I would have done, whether I would have just waited to be, I think I probably would have just waited to have to ask, answer a question. When the minister asked a question of the room and it was me that had to answer it and see what the reaction was um yeah not not the best and it's happened a lot as a as a civil servant it's happened a lot to me um but i can't imagine anything more embarrassing than being the official that didn't know what the who the minister was and asking that question i can only imagine imagine the person that said to you uh when's the minister arriving and you said hi it's me just being like oh my god
3: <laughs> like i
0: just yeah, can't we imagine. went on to have
2: a great conversation but you're right Rhiannon, there is a way for those with power and privilege to step up and to call out whether it's mansplaining or sheep eating or, you know, folks speaking over women, that that's, those are good ways to use your privilege. Uh, the Prime Minister, um, you know, all Prime Minister Trudeau also will keep track of how often women speak in a room compared to men. Uh, You know, he's he's a really good chair of meetings that way. Um, So, you know, those are additional responsibilities for those who want to accept those responsibilities, who say we need diversity of age, race, uh, backgrounds, experiences around the table. Okay, so you surround yourself with a table of diverse people. Does everybody feel like they belong? Probably not. How are you going to go out of your way and be extra diligent? So that when you're facilitating a conversation in a room like that, that you're moving the needle, right? You're showing rather than telling how to be gracious and inclusive and productive, right? It doesn't make sense not to know the number one person on a file. If everybody in that day blocked off their schedule to be in that room to talk about that thing, it's good to build that relationship. So it's. There's value for everyone in being thoughtful and supportive and if you're the one, and this is where leadership matters, right? If you're the one convening that meeting, if you're the one who's saying inclusion, belonging, all that good stuff matter, then you have additional responsibilities to go out of your way to make sure that she, they, whoever isn't typically seen as as the, the person in that role, feels welcome and safe and supported, even when others don't necessarily create those conditions.
3: Your stories where you've said it's happened so many times where uh, you've had people who've sort of been unkind to you, do, do you find that it's mainly males or are females just as guilty of it as well?
2: The The challenges women experience are so deeply embedded in our culture that know we all play a role in perpetuating the stereotypes and the problematic behaviors consciously or unconsciously um it hurts more certainly in my experience when it's when it comes from women it hurts more um it hurts more when it comes from women maybe i'll leave it there
1: Right. So let's start with you having led public policy files at the highest level of government. Can you talk to us about your experience? Um, Did a focus on social and economic justice make your job easier or harder to influence change at a national and global level?
2: Leadership matters, right? If I had a boss, if, if Canada had a prime minister who didn't value equity, justice, inclusion, I would have had a very hard time being who I am being driven by the values that, you know, got me interested in politics in the first place to, to do what I believe deeply was the right thing to do when I got to Ottawa, when I got to the capital. Leadership matters. Um, what I have learned in social justice work is being able to make the economic case for a change is a really important way to boost that initiative and to speak the language of those who don't automatically buy into the premise of, well, if we invested in women's organizations at the grassroots level, they would create physical safety and economic security for women, thereby helping them get out of abusive relationships piece back what's been broken, take their kids with them somewhere safe and, you know, get the skills they need and start their own business and create jobs or fill the labor shortages that exist. So we're fortunate for all the work that remains to be done that we're alive in this century. I was fortunate to be around the table with so many women and men who believe that social justice and economic justice, grow the economy, create jobs and promote sustainability and better outcomes for everyone. I cannot imagine being the only woman in a room like that. I cannot imagine being the only woman in parliament and how difficult it must have been for her to be expected to be the one to raise her hand and be the only one talking about these social justice issues. That said, you know, where I struggled as a novice, as someone who was, you know, who got elected and was like, wait, do I even deserve to be elected, you know, and then get appointed to that most powerful table? I could have used more supports. I could have used resources. I could have used additional coaching. I, you know, could have had a broader circle of advisors around me. There's a lot of coulda, shoulda's that could have provided me with the tools that would have helped me deal with those unpleasant circumstances, but also be smart about the opportunities and challenges that I was faced with. And why I started Onward, why I started my business was Okay, it's one thing to say we need different people from different backgrounds, particularly around social justice issues and representative folks to be at these decision-making powers and to believe it and to champion it. It's a whole other thing. It's a whole other project to make sure that they go into those rooms eyes wide open. It's a whole other project and a whole other set of efforts to provide them with the tools they need to succeed and to navigate those institutions which were not designed to support and include these different folks. So, you know, yes, social justice helps around the table that I was at because of the leadership and the promise made to Canadians that we would focus on inclusion and belonging. But there's also room for additional supports for all those different types of people. So that once they get to those tables, they can be their best selves and quickly adapt to the challenges
1: that come their way. You mentioned how difficult it must be being the only person in the room talking about particular social justice issues. And I think you've hit the nail on the head because when you spend the the majority of the conversation, the majority of your energy trying to convince others in the room that the problem you came to discuss even exists, you greatly reduce the probability of that problem ever finding a solution. So that's where leadership and buy-in and allies become invaluable because you can just bypass all that unnecessary noise. The way you talk about individuals walking into these rooms with their eyes wide open and being equipped with the right resources and leadership to navigate certain institutions, it takes me back to our episode with Christina Luntz and the need for feminist foreign policy to enable governments to enact local laws that protect the equality of social and economic mobility. But more importantly, it starts to move us away from a world built by men for men. As it stands, women not only have to navigate the landscape of political institutions, they also have to learn how to lead as a man because we've been conditioned time and time again to believe that the image of man and male characteristics are symbiotic with being a good leader. And whilst we are starting to see acknowledgement of and praise for alternative and arguably more feminine leadership styles, Sanna Marin, Jacinda Arden come to mind women continue to experience criticism for prioritizing their careers over starting a family and then for those with families they receive criticism for neglecting their children demasculating their husbands or being silly enough for attempting to have it all and then you have those who are in public facing positions of power so prime ministers mps journalists quite often this social backlash takes on the form of violent and often sexual online abuse for simply existing as a woman. And then what we see is women leaving their positions, sometimes the workforce altogether, because the abuse gets unbearable. But also, it's never taken seriously. There still seems to be this idea that online can't translate to in real life and we've seen time and time again that it absolutely does and i would highly recommend a book by laura bates called men who hate women if you want to explore that topic in any more detail we should be looking to leaders who take these social issues seriously and i think that's probably why it was so refreshing to read that under your stewardship marion that canada was recognized as a world leader in sexual and reproductive health and rights investments in domestic and international grassroots women's organizations and also its intersectional response to COVID-19. Can you describe some of the activities that you undertook to gain that recognition and how important are such initiatives for achieving greater inclusivity in government policy, laws and movements such as feminism? Let me go up a few thousand feet and say it matters who
2: had the job before you and it matters who has the job after you because particularly around gender and equity issues broadly these aren't challenges or problems that were created in the last four years therefore four years of effort will undo them easily no this is centuries of oppression and misogyny and sexism and racism and colonization that have brought us to this moment and generations of, you know, problematic behaviors and tendencies and traumas being transferred. So it matters who's got the job before you, who's got the job after you, and it really, really matters who your team is. Um, So in the case of sexual reproductive health rights and the women's organizations around the world, um, Canada, you know, believed under the leadership of the prime minister, we have and continues to believe that when women are safe, when women are doing well, families are stronger, communities are stronger, economies are more resilient. That's That's a value system. So those values matter, not just the individual doing the work, responsible for the file, but the team as a whole believes it. The other thing that I will say is I got appointed and sworn in as the woman's minister 10 days before Mr. Trump got sworn in as the president of the United States. So there was an impetus for Canada to step up around women's rights and gender equality in that era and while we're not as big as the us i'd like to believe that the leadership that canada provided you know really recognized that we have to step up we have to you know push back against the pushback while maintaining positive relations with our neighbors and so we became more motivated as a team to step up. But also like, let me say this, I had the longest mandate letter in government and the prime minister was insistent that every step of the way, every file we let on for women, include women and grassroots women's organizations, particularly at the beginning, middle and end of the process, end of the project. So we took our lead from feminists, some of whom have been pushing for these changes for decades and decades. So the Thrive Agenda, and I will give a shout out to Julia Anderson from CanWatch, this coalition of incredible organizations pushed and pushed and pushed and made the case for why Canada need to, needed to step up and be at the time the number one investor in SRHR at a time when the global gag rule was in effect. I have to give a shout out to every single woman's organization in Canada who from the very beginning made the case and you know, economists and thought leaders like the late great Kate McInturf made the case that the best way to advance gender equality is to invest in grassroots women's organizations. They have the ability to stretch every dollar to the max. They've got the resources, the networks, the know-how, invest in them, trust them, with money and see what they will do for you. And I have to credit the relationships that were built. Like I remember, you know, you know, doing my thing early on as woman's minister in rooms of, you know, badass feminists who were listening to me talk and, you know, big rooms of the, you know, who's who of feminists in Canada with their arms crossed and like clearly skeptical of what this little minister was saying to them about her vision and her government's plans for the sector. But then those very same women who in 2017 were you know, rightfully skeptical were among those that I picked up the phone and called in the early days of the pandemic and said, there's no blueprint for how to govern in a time like this. What do I need to focus very quickly on to make sure that women and their children are okay? And these women took my calls and they were generous with their time. And as diverse as they are, and we all know that, you know, they don't always say the same thing, they don't always uh, agree. They all said the same thing. They all said, you better make sure that you understand and that that your government understands that when we go into lockdown, that the rates of violence are gonna increase. The consumption of alcohol will increase. The strain on people's mental health will, will increase. And those formal and informal services that were in place to support the most vulnerable women and children in our community, whether it's schools or workplaces, shelters or drop-in centers or libraries will no longer be available and a safe haven that she can just go to nonchalantly without making a scene. So you better make sure that when she finds the courage and the way out of a terrible violent home, that there is a safe place for her to go to And that that place she goes to, that the staff are paid, that they've got proper PPE and that they're able to care for her and that the lights are on and the doors stay open. So for for that moment, you know, to happen after years of earning the trust of these women's organizations, that was probably one of the most important moments in my experience as a cabinet minister during COVID, because those relationships paid off. The trust we had built with the women leading the work at the community level paid off. Those conversations I took to the cabinet table and the prime minister, the finance minister, didn't skip a beat, right? Prime minister, the rates of violence are gonna go up, whether, you know, we if whether mandatory or voluntary, we're telling people to stay at home, Not every home is a safe home. The prime minister and the finance minister within days came out with like a multi-million dollar package to support the sector. We were then able to pick up the phones again and call every other in Canada system, the provinces and territories have their own jurisdiction. I was able to call my counterparts in every province and territory and say, hey, what's the quickest way we can get money to the front lines? Because none of our governments in the past have done a good job at trusting women's organizations with money. They'd gone through all sorts of loops and challenges to fight for a tiny pot of money. Let's do this quickly. We'll make them fill out a two pager. And this two pager will only ask the essential info. We'll trust that they will deliver for us. We'll get the money into their bank accounts by the first week of April. Remember, the pandemic was recognized the second week of March. Can you share with us a list of women's organizations that you trust and you believe need this money? And we worked so well together within days that money was in bank accounts. And in that first year of the pandemic, A million women and children that we know of were able to find safety and sanctuary in those spaces in their darkest hour. And then from that success came, you know, much more investment. And from that investment came and those conversations came a recognition that women are not just going to be the most vulnerable during COVID, but given who is working in the care economy given who's taken on these tasks that we haven't seen as essential but hey turns out these 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 tasks these women have performed disproportionately are essential to our survival we better listen to women and we better look for ways that you know different racialized communities for example will be disproportionately negatively impacted by covid and how they can be extra helpful in containing the virus from there came a task force within the government to make sure every decision made went through that intersectional gendered lens which built on what we were already doing as a government before the pandemic but you know, i will go back to where i started with this when we trust women's organizations who are in this for the right reasons nobody goes into that sector to make money or to not be helpful right when we trusted these women with money they delivered, they delivered big, and then they went above and beyond with their advice and their support and their resourcefulness to make sure that government's initiatives succeeded. Wow. Yeah, that's all I've got is wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, the sector is brilliant. They do deserve a wow. I mean, you're brilliant. <laughs> let's, like, let's not beat around the bush here. You are brilliant. We have an actual superstar on the podcast with us today. Just, yeah, blows my mind. <laughs> I have to I have to ask so you were talking about this idea of, of communities and building like strong relationships with those that you end up having to work with so that obviously could be local government but also foreign government as well now I cannot imagine being Trudeau having all these great ambitions putting in place really progressive ideas and making sure that you've got this cabinet who are fit for purpose who are going to go out in there and deliver on these things and then the day that you're sworn in finding out that your neighbor is Trump I just wondered if there is ever room for tough love and you know the scene that comes to mind is Hugh Grant in uh, Love actually kind of standing up to the President of the United States. But a more real example, um, a better example is probably Iran being kicked out of the Commission on the Status of Women for the remainder of its 2022 to 2026 term. And I know there's a lot of complexities when it comes to different cultures, different countries, different leaders, but I sometimes feel that some really progressive policies either get put on hold or never make, you know, you never see the light of day simply because we are too focused on keeping these quote unquote good relationships when in fact they're, they're not good, that they're built up on quite hostile policies you know, peace treaties may sound very nice, but if the whole point of a peace treaty is because your neighbour has to pinky promise that he won't nuke you overnight. That doesn't seem like the sort of relationship you want to get into bed with. It seems like a very forced way to maintain some sort of secret bro code that, you know, well, you keep your mouth shut, about how we treat same-sex couples in our country and as a reward, you're allowed to continue having a military base here. You ignore the fact that we're one of the worst countries for human trafficking and you get a good oil supply. And I know it's far more complex than that, but it does feel that this whole you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, is a weakness of mankind because if we never break that cycle, humanity is never going to progress because at the moment, these relationships are built on destruction rather than peace. They're built on hatred rather than love and respect for people. They're built on oppression versus freedom. And it, it's really sad what, you know, that again, having spoken to Christina Lunds, you know, there are people out there who are trying to introduce more equality based policies. But it feels like we need some leaders to say, we refuse to do business with you. And, and I t- is that even possible in a world that is so codependent on other? on other countries
2: well it depends on how that tough love manifests itself right do you is it is it okay so I feel good having spoken out and said this person's wrong and that's enough or is it sure I we respectfully disagree but we're gonna double our investments in this thing that is no longer being covered the the responsible thing to do in the case of iran and the un commission on the status of women was to ask them to yes step aside you do not exemplify the values that the un commission on the status of women has for the past 60 plus years uh, been been espousing been been advocating for and you got this strong women's movement making history saying as women of Iran, we don't feel safe. So no, that was the right move there. In the case of the US, um, under Mr. Trump's leadership, I'm really proud of the Team Canada approach that politicians of all stripes took during that era, including christia Freeland, including the prime minister, because our economies are so interdependent. And so, you know, there was a lot of discipline in discourse and there was a lot of relationship building because we had to protect Canada's economy, but we also stood up for our values and you know became the number one investor in SRHR and women's organizations. We convened the largest gathering of feminists on the planet in Vancouver with Women Deliver, you know, we established a department for women and gender equality. We enshrined into law, doing an intersectional gender lens for every federal budget for the rest of time. And, you know, a bunch of other initiatives came into effect to show that we're gonna lead by example, we're gonna walk the talk, and we're going to be diplomatic in our relations with our closest ally and neighbor. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's something I'm really proud of Canadians for having done. And I'm also really proud of the women of Iran who have led the way and have guided us, the international community, and have motivated us to call out a regime that is so harmful to women. And we're able to disqualify them from taking a seat of power and privilege in support of women when, you know, their principles every day did anything but that. So, you know, there's a place for it, certainly. Uh, and, you know, in both cases, the right process, the right people uh, were heard and uh, the results were, I think, the right way forward.
0: So I know we're probably gonna, well, we certainly will uh, cover shortly some, some of the news from Iran and Afghanistan. But I think one of the things I'm interested to hear is, canada was doing so much and you were doing so much for reproductive rights and women's rights and things and then every day you wake up and hear that another state in america has shut another family planning clinic or have banned something else or have removed funding from from another women's rights thing and certainly from over here in the uk i was thinking oh god another thing because and a lot of people said to me why does it matter to you what they're doing in the us and there's a number of reasons for that Personally, I've got nieces and nephews over there and so and family over there. And so it's important to me, uh, they live in Texas. So that's almost, is almost the worst place they could be for that kind of thing. Um, but also it tends to be that there's knock on effect in Europe when we see countries like America make these big changes, but you're on their doorsteps. And so you're making all these incredible changes. And then every day that it feels like there's a bit of a knockdown, like how did, how do you, personally managed that kind of, we're doing something incredible, and next door there's all of this horrible stuff.
2: It helps to have women like Marie-Claude Bebeau, who led the way on feminist international assistance policy around the table. It helps to have women like Christia Freeland around the table, who led the way on, you know, feminist foreign policy, like, you know, Christia was in, you know, Davos and different um economic circles wearing her Japar feminist T-shirt and like proudly talking about childcare as good, smart, feminist and economic policy. Um, it helps to have women like Patty Haydew, who, you know, was was woman's minister when Mr. Trump got elected, um, being her true authentic self and, you know, sharing what she had heard the next day in a big gathering of women about what this meant. Um, So that all helps. It also helps to be reminded that every step that women and equity seeking groups have taken that has led to progress has been faced with backlash. There was backlash when we got the right to vote there was backlash when we entered the workforce. There's backlash as we attain positions of power and privilege as women like Catherine McKenna, our former climate and environment minister have shown, just look up our any of our Twitter feeds. So except that there is a backlash that comes with the progress that we make, I think that's helpful. And it can be discouraging to be sure. Uh, to see progress that takes decades to make be taken away overnight. I mean, I'm still like so many millions reeling from what happened in Afghanistan a year and a bit ago, where overnight the two decades of progress and hard-won gains that women have made were just gone and continue to be chipped away at. It's devastating and it takes time to recover, but it can also be motivating, right? Patty Heidi used to say, none of these rights, none of this progress is carved in stone. And accepting that and creating the conditions to anchor that progress in meaningful, steady, strong ways is good public policy so you anchor that progress in data so that it becomes difficult to argue with facts that when you invest in women you grow the economy and you create jobs you invest in relationships so that you know progressives have a tendency as President Obama used to say to eat our own <laughs> we're perfectionists who eat our own you know someone will give you 85% of what you've been asking for for decades and decades but because it wasn't 100% you you throw the whole thing out and you become their biggest critic even though the other person's going to do minus 10% of that um the other piece is you know plant seeds that will grow over time and For me, what was motivating about the pushback and the undoing of progress was, you know, it led me to see as my number one priority the sustainability of the women's movement, a movement that I belong to, but a movement that's been here long before any of us got here a movement that will continue long after we're gone. Any progress we've made as governments is because these women have pushed us to. And so if we invest in their resilience and sustainability, then whoever's next, A, they will hold their feet to fire, make sure that there's a political price to be paid for undoing of progress. B, they will keep moving it forward. And C, they'll continue to show through their resourcefulness and act- activism and frankly, like brilliance, that it is possible to grow the economy and create good jobs and hold up women and hold up the most vulnerable. So, you know, feel the pain and be angry about it and be on alert and never take a single step of progress for granted. Celebrate the small victories, but also use the setbacks to motivate
0: and i definitely think you're right you know when you say about how we can't take for granted that we've made progress because it's so easy to be pushed back and i think a lot of people again as i said will say well why do you care about that thing so much over there or why is this thing so important to you when you know the gender pay gap has got smaller and you and, and list you know lists of things where people are like well that is better for you you are I think certainly like us, us three here, we, we are in good jobs and we do earn good money. And so what are you complaining about? And it's like, because it can be taken away so quickly, as you said, as we've seen in Afghanistan, we've seen in states in America, when it comes to reproductive rights, we've seen in um, various countries in Europe, who have removed the right to abortion or removed the right to all sorts of things. It's so easy to have it ripped away that we just can't take it for granted. anne go ahead.
3: It goes back to the thing Mariam, that you were saying earlier as well about that, you know, we need allyship, we need people. And it's it's not just in the boardroom that we need that, we need it on a global scale. And that's the reason we do care because progress can be lost frighteningly quickly. Um, it takes so long to build up and it can just go um, in, a, in a year and a half, as we've seen in Afghanistan. And if, that, if anything like that happened over here or, or in any country, I would want I would want other countries to be saying that they're outraged by it in the same way that someone in a boardroom who's being spoken to unkindly needs a more senior person to say, "No, no, no. Rhiannon's also in the room. She needs to be introduced." It, it, it works. That's why you care because because we're human and because we want other people to succeed.
1: Do we think so? Like Afghanistan, I think is a, an extreme. Like like Iran seemed extreme, and then Afghanistan came along and kind of went, "No, no, we can do one better." Hold um, my beer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, like I think, well, this week a news article came out saying that the Taliban is now banning women in Afghanistan from seeing male doctors. And Mariam, today you've spoken a lot about pushing the economical, um, economic argument in terms of investing in women. It's going to benefit you economically, but that, for me, just seems like like completely counterproductive to a, a society you've removed women from education you're now forbidding women from seeing male doctors so there's going to be a point in your upcoming future where you're going to have no female doctors because no one's coming through university and you're going to have a generation of women who then don't have access to healthcare. and as Rihanna said when we say like why do you care so much about the US is because you're just seeing examples of the same thing but at different levels throughout different countries so again you know france telling people they can't wear a hijab and you've got iran enforcing that people do you've got the u.s banning reproduction rights and also access to contraception and then you've got afghanistan completely banning women from any healthcare. and part of well the question i'd like to ask is like how do we truly safeguard women and girls across the the globe and is feminist diplomacy the way forward
2: so on the topic of afghanistan let me just like actually come down several thousand feet. Um, I lost the election in 2021. And I don't know if anybody listening has ever lost an election or a contest or a job, or if it's done publicly, it certainly stings. Winning is better. Um, And in that process, you know, it was a really toxic campaign as well, locally and nationally. And, you know, even though, you know, I was raised by a single mom who came to Canada because the violence and the oppression of the Taliban created the conditions back in the 90s for her to feel like the only thing I can do is take the biggest risk of them all, leave everything I know, everyone I know, and go to a country where my daughters can be saved, to get an education, to stand on their own feet. Oh. Even though that had been the case there was just a lot of toxicity and in the end i was you know even accused of being a taliban sympathizer that was gross and that hurt i'm sorry you went for that but nothing hurts nothing hurts the way that i hurt thinking about and seeing every day the erasure of women from Afghan society, the erosion of progress that the international community made in Afghanistan, and frankly, the indifference that it is met with by the broader global community. I have never felt a pain like that. And that's me in my privilege in a safe community in North America with the opportunities that I have. I still stay in touch with, you know, women, former politicians now and decision makers from Afghanistan. The women who fought for rights and went through this horrible chapter with the Taliban 20 years ago, and now this horrible movie is replaying itself with a brand new Taliban with much more cruel and much more sophisticated ways of oppressing women like this. There's no pain like this. So I'm, you know, a year and a bit since the fall of Kabul. That's where I am personally and still trying to figure out, you know, how did we get here? And part of it is we didn't listen to the women. When the so-called peace conversation started between America and the Taliban, the women told us that they weren't invited to the table. The women asked us to create spaces for them to feed into this reconciliation process. They weren't welcomed and then barely so once they were a handful of them included. We didn't listen to the women when they said to us and when I say us I mean the global community who invested you know heavily both in terms of treasure and talent and lives lost we didn't listen to these women when they said to us the Taliban haven't changed they may say to you oh no we won't hurt women's rights and we'll you know we're not going to be the the big bad Taliban that we used to be their mandate is to erase women. Their mandate is to you know, undo progress. We didn't listen to them, we didn't believe them. One of the reasons we all feel unnerved and threatened when women's rights in one corner of the world is taken away or threatened is because instinctively we understand that that's a canary in the mine for the status of women everywhere. If a group of men, a group of terrorists whose mandate has been, and what they're known for is holding women back and holding women down and violating women and women's rights in the worst of ways can walk into one capital and undo progress made over decades and overthrow a democratically elected government, there's no stopping that group or another similar group from walking into another capital and attempting the same thing. So instinctively, we feel that as a global community of women and advocates and activists. And it is up to all of us. It's not up to a politician or a country. And I think the problem that creates is a diffusion of responsibility, right? When everybody plays a part, when everybody has a responsibility, sometimes no one takes the responsibility because we're all waiting for somebody else to do it. So, so true. you know, the the thing that folks can do, and I don't know who's listening to this, but you know, one of the things I've heard from particularly Afghan women decision makers, whether they were ministers or lawyers or, you know, strong women leading the way, one of the things you can do for the women who have made it out of Afghanistan is this create fellowships and opportunities for them at your post secondary institutions at your universities, at your colleges, at your workplaces so that these women have a platform to continue leading, to continue amplifying the voices of those women who we don't hear from anymore because they have been successfully erased. The Taliban are winning and when women lose, the Taliban win, when when the Taliban lose is because the women are winning. So create those opportunities for these women because they are the strongest and most effective tools for change and for gaining back slowly over decades what's been lost. Um, We heard this week that uh, one of the women parliamentarians, uh, the late great Morsal, was killed in Kabul. And so these women continue to be under threat because they have the power to make a difference. So we can support them. But, you know, I have, I'm still processing what's happened in Afghanistan. And I'm, you know, working behind the scenes with some local organizations, national organizations here in Canada, who are working to bring together Afghan diaspora with allies so that. What we're seeing in Afghanistan, A is addressed and B is not repeated elsewhere because if they can do it in one capital, it can happen in another capital overnight.
0: Do you um, see any kind of hope in the fact that we've seen quite a lot of men kind of standing by the women who are being marched out of universities and you know various other things? Is is I I I was um, I was too young when the Taliban were uh, sort of around originally and in charge originally. Um, but I don't know if that sort of thing happened then. Um, you know, we've talked about allyship and things. Do you think it helps or are there enough men
2: to, to kind of back those women and, and try to make a difference? It helps enormously. And I'm so proud of those men. And we need those men. We need them to keep stepping up for us, to use their power and privilege to create safety where there is none. women can't go outside without men anymore, once more. So it helps, it definitely helps to have men by our side. It is a cause for hope. But we also need all Afghan men to stand with us. Because as long as there is even 20% of support for Taliban, will continue to keep them in power and they will continue to break the the fragile but you know full of promise place that is afghanistan and it will hurt all of us it will hurt the region it will the security of that region matters the the stability of that region matters the violence that is promoted and supported in that corner of the world as we saw with 9-11 can spill into our communities you know tens of thousands of kilometers away so it's in all our interests but yeah definitely our fathers our sons our husbands our brothers afghans need to be afghan men need to be with us and to see those standing with us creating safe spaces that is cause for hope also cause for hope is 20 years of the international community coming together and showing girls and women that there is a better way you know if there's one silver lining in all this that keeps that fire in the belly from being diminished for this work it's that but those women have seen a better way and those women are standing up and saying we will not go back And the more we support that fire in the belly and grow it, the more likely it is that those women will continue to have hope. But if those women feel like they're forgotten by the international
1: community, then the Taliban will keep winning. So I can't remember if I was talking to somebody or if I read it online, but I think one thing that the Taliban may have underestimated this time around is that they are removing rights and protections of people of of a generation of people who have experienced what it's like to be educated they have tasted freedom and they don't want to go back to an oppressive state i also think it's worth noting that you mentioned marion that if the taliban lose then women win and i think unfortunately there's this belief that if women win then men lose firstly i think it's funny that anyone thinks women are trying to take over the world maybe beyonce didn't help us there but i think all we're striving for, all feminism is striving for, is, is equality. Where we're looking to share that space with men. We're not looking to dominate men. And if you look at matriarchal societies, or pretty much any society that's less than the patriarchal societies that we have today, what you tend to find is that things such as social justice, social infrastructure, healthcare, families, they're all prioritised. And so you find that there's much more investment in people and their well-being and communities which you often don't find when it comes to patriarchal societies and a lot of that is about order and social ranking and as we've seen with afghanistan it becomes counterintuitive to the economical success of a country so if women win men win too okay but the taliban
2: i will say this the taliban aren't ordinary men in our communities who you know for the most part are doing their best to you know live in the 21st century and you know provide and care and be loving and to contribute meaningfully to society the talibans mandate is to oppress women they they do not see women doing well as a win for them, and they never will. This is a terrorist organization, mm-hmm. and they do need to lose. We yeah. need them to lose. They did lose, and then we handed back to them, the global community, the women, the daughters of the women that they oppressed, on a silver platter and said, well, as long as you promise, you'll let them keep going to school and working, we believe you. Um, These aren't typical men, but I agree with you that, you know, fundamentally, when when women are doing well it's not they're taking away from a pie they're growing a pie and they're giving back and all sorts of studies show that when women do well men do better whether it's you know with their you know jobs and the state of the economy with their personal relationships more satisfaction they have better sex lives like you know there's a lot of research to support when women are doing well so so are men uh, but in the case of taliban that is not the case
1: I hear you. I also have to say, for anyone who's not the Taliban, if better sex is not an incentive to support and uplift women, I I just don't know what is. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. (laughs) It's always nice to finish an episode with sex. Mariam, I am really aware of your time. So I'm gonna finish up with two final questions. The first is, what are your ambitions for Onward? And the second is, was there anything that you came here to say today, but you haven't had an opportunity to do so?
2: No, you've let me say a lot today and I really appreciate um, the space you've given me. This This was therapeutic, this was cathartic. Thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast, Onward. My vision, my team's vision with this initiative is building a world where women leaders are creating space and opportunities for women and their families to thrive. That's the goal. If we keep women in those decision-making tables, if we equip them with the tools and resources they need to get there in the first place and thrive, not just survive around those tables, that's a win on so many levels and you know what's ahead i'm gonna uh i'm gonna have a baby in a couple of months so that'll be an interesting project advice is welcomed um (laughs) just get just
0: get a trello board and just treat it like any old project it's it's fine just lots of lists (laughs) that's really good advice
2: there are many lists in the works and a few things are being checked off not as quickly as i hope so keep that advice coming um and very soon after baby's here i'm gonna keep showing up to the speaking engagements I'm being invited to. I'm going to keep facilitating workshops and retreats and do one-on-one consultations with particularly women leaders who are struggling or who want to, you know, better navigate, whether it's government or being around the big boys and girls table. So I'm going to go right back into the work. Uh, so, you know, conversations like this feed my fire in the belly. So
1: thank you so much. I like the fact you've made space for the fire next to baby. We appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. We've loved every second and I've taken so much away from this conversation and just am so incredibly grateful for everything that you shared with us today.
3: Yeah, I've absolutely love I've, I've been speechless at times, uh, listening to how eloquently you speak and how passionately you speak. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Um, we we often do a piece of homework at the end of our podcasts, but I which always starts with grab a glass of wine and uh, depending on what we've talked about. But I think we should probably move the homework to the yeah, or a, or a coffee or, or whatever. um I think we should probably move the homework to the start of the podcast and say grab a glass of wine and listen to Mariam because she is fantastic. This has been my favourite recording session by by uh, by I've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for making time for us.
0: I was going to say exactly the same thing, anne I was just going to say, grab a glass of wine and re-listen to this. Just there's too many things to run
1: through. You're my new hero. And um, thank you so much. And good luck. The best of luck with your with your baby. And I hope everything goes well for you and your child over the next couple of months. And then on. Thank you. Thank you so much. All the working moms
2: out there asking for your good vibes and your your <laughs> prayers for a very boring delivery. <laughs> And on that note, Rihanna, will you take
0: us home, please? I will. Uh, The Unfairer Sex is not sponsored. So if you liked our show, please show your support by liking, subscribing and sharing on all your favourite social media platforms. We're on Twitter at The Unfairer Sex. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Unfairer Sex Podcast. And you can email us, theunfairsex at gmail.com. Just before we wrap up, I I just, I saw one thing that I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. That you were recognised by Apolitical as one of the top 20 global influencers on gender equality alongside Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that just like something that you're just like, oh my goodness, this is, this, I mean, you've done so many incredible things. And then to be on that top 20 list with RBG.
2: I know. Sometimes I'm like, is this real life?
0: It's just incredible. You're, you're, yeah, this, this has been an utterly incredible recording and I look forward to re-listening to it.
2: (laughs) Thank you women.